Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is living and breathing and applies to every single life in this room tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would be our teacher. In man's weakness, I pray that you would be made strong. And Father, I just pray for us that our hearts would be receptive to hear what you want to minister to each of us, Lord. And just thank you again that you're here, that you're in our midst. Pray for those who may be here tonight that may be struggling or going through difficulty. That, Lord, I pray this would be a time of comfort and encouragement. And Lord, just a time of exhortation for all of us, Lord. May we grow deeper in our love for you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. We're going to pick up in chapter 6 this week, and we're going to be looking at, at kind of two totally different sections in the text. The first half of it is dealing with the trespass offering, or the consequences of sin. How many of you know that sin has consequences? Raise your hand, all right? We're going to see that really clearly tonight. Sin has consequences. And then we get to the second half of the chapter, we're going to see the role of the great high priest. We're going to see some of the same offerings we looked at in the first six chapters, but we're going to see the priest's role in those offerings and how it's such a clear picture, once again, of Jesus Christ. So let's begin by uh, getting a little background. In chapter 4, we looked at the sin offering. In the sin offering, we saw that all sin requires a sacrifice, that, that, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. What's the, what's the word that's the most common word in the entire book of Leviticus? What is it? It's blood. And it's a very bloody book because sin is awful and sin requires a heavy-duty payment. And we get to chapter 6, we saw the first of the, the required sacrifices, which was the sin offering. That there must be the shedding of blood for the mission of sin. And the sin offering there talked about even sins where the person didn't know they had sinned. Remember that? Sins unintentionally. Or sins in ignorance. Where no matter what we've done that is sin, it must be paid for. Even if we don't know that it's sin, it's still sin. It's not my knowledge that determines good and evil. It's God's holiness that determines good and evil. He is the standard. And everything is measured against Him. Not us voting on whether or not something's good. It's not, you know, you, you've heard the term moral relativism, right? That's what we have in the United States today. It's all relative, and you kind of vote on it, and as long as everybody feels good about it, then it's okay. Well, the Bible's the standard, and God's Word is the standard. And, and so that's what we saw in, this, in the sin offering, that even if it's a sin done in ignorance, it's still sin. Then in chapter 5, we saw the beginning of the trespass offering that we're going to finish up tonight. It dealt with various types of sin. The first one was, if you remember, a witness who refuses to testify under oath. And we talked about the fact that as Christians that we've been called by God and exhorted by God to be people who speak the truth. He told us to go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. He's put us under a command to be people who speak up for the truth. And he said those who did not step up when they were under oath that they were in sin. And the same is true for us. The application for us being that we need to be people who are vocal about our faith. We need to be people that realize that it is sin not to open up our mouths and share when God gives us the opportunity. He then goes on to talk about uh, touching any unclean thing. Remember last week he said if you touch a dead or an, an unclean, either an animal, an insect, or even a person, a, a leper, or uh, in some cases a woman after childbirth who hadn't been cleansed. In pursuit of holiness, he told Israel that they were to watch where they walked and what they touched and what they, they came in contact with. And the same is true for each one of us. Not only are we called to step up and to speak the truth, but we too should not be unequally yoked together with the world. We too should not be hanging out with the things of the world. We shouldn't be conforming to the world. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world, and an example to it. We're to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. And then lastly, last week, we saw him talk about making a rash oath or a promise. 
And the Lord desires that we be people of, the, of our word. We're going to see that more tonight as we look at the, the transgressions that, that cause the consequences of sin. And you know what? I think in the, in the church today, we need to be careful that when we say something, that we mean what we say. Amen? The Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. The world, they'll say whatever they have to say to get what they want. But as Christians, we're called to be salt and light and let our yes be yes and our no be no. So to me, it sounds like a recipe for a holy life. Boldly proclaiming the truth, watching where you walk, what you touch, who you fellowship with, and being a person of your word. But the reality is you can't do these things in and of yourself. You must be walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit or you cannot speak boldly the truth. If you're not walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, you will fellowship with the world. If you're not walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, you cannot be a person of your word. And then the last thing we saw last week was the response of those who were guilty of these sins. The first one was confession. We must first admit that we are sinners in desperate need of our Savior. Without, without confession, there can be no forgiveness. And then the second response was that after confession, there had to be a sacrifice, seeing that desperate need for atonement, realizing that we need the death of Christ on the cross. So we get to chapter 6 tonight, and as we pick up, we're going to finish looking at the trespass, or in some of your Bibles, it may even say the guilt offering. And then again, we're going to look at the priestly regulations for the burnt grain and sin offerings, each of which will clearly point to Jesus. So let's begin in verse 1, and we're going to look at the consequences of sin as we look at the trespass or guilt offering. Verse 1. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. Now, isn't it interesting? We talked about this last week, but the Lord communicated with Moses all the time, didn't he? It was like Moses had a running conversation with God. He had an intimate fellowship with God. We don't see the Lord speaking to Aaron. We don't see the Lord speaking to anybody else, but he's always speaking to Moses. Now, why is he speaking to Moses? Why does he pick Moses out of all the people? And I believe again and again it's because Moses was a man who walked closest to the Lord. You want to hear from God? Walk closely with Him. Have an intimate relationship with Him. When people say, I never hear from God, it's not because God's not speaking, it's because you're not listening. Amen? I mean, God desires to minister to us. And we're, we're His children, just like, you know, sometimes you yell at your kids and they don't listen, right? Stop it! You know, they just seem like they got their, their, their tuners turned to another station or something, and they don't hear what we say, and it's not because we're not speaking, it's because they're not listening, and the same is true of us. God spoke to Moses because Moses was a man who walked closely with God, and the Lord desires to speak to us today through his word, through his Holy Spirit, through, the, through others, other believers, people that teach us the Bible, and so God spoke to Moses again about man's relationship with God and then man's relationship with others. Now it's interesting that what was the first thing that was written and given to Moses. Who remembers? Up on the mountain. What did, what did God give him? Ten commandments. And remember, the first four commandments all have to do with man's relationship with God. What's the first commandment? Who remembers? No other God before me. What's the second commandment? No graven image. The third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So the first four commandments deal with man's relationship to God. And the next six commandments deal with man's relationship with men. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that's what he's going to talk about next, is, the, is man's relationship with men. The fifth commandment is honor your mother and father. The sixth commandment is thou shalt not kill, then thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's possessions. So man's relationship with man, and that's what he's going to talk about here. Look at verse 2. 
It says, if a, if a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor about what he has delivered to him for safekeeping or about a pledge or about a robbery or if he has extorted from his neighbor. Now the first thing that we see here is that when we lie to our neighbor, we sin against God. It says there, if any man is guilty of sinning against God by lying to his neighbor. So if you lie to your neighbor, you're sinning against God. Every sin is ultimately against God. But as we're going to see tonight, that sin against men also has consequences with men. We sin against God and we need forgiveness from God, but we also need restoration with men. And this is something that I think is lacking in the church today. We don't, I don't think we take it serious enough that we need to have right relationships with each other. Amen? If we sin against each other, we need to have hearts to come to one another and seek each other's forgiveness. Forgive me. Instead of talking bad about each other, we should be seeking forgiveness from one another. Now, it said lying about, to his neighbor about what he was delivered to him for safekeeping. Now, in those days, and just like today, it'd be like if your neighbor went out of town. And while he was out of town, he said, hey, he said, hey I'm going to be on vacation for the next 10 days. Would you keep an eye on my house for me? Would you watch it? Here's my key. Could you go in and water my plants? Okay, great. I'd be happy to do that for you. And then he comes back and his whole house is empty. TV's gone, stereo's gone, everything's gone, right? Now, you, you happen to bring it over and, you know, furnish your attic pretty sweet looking now, right? Because you've taken all the stuff out of his house, and you've put it up in your house. And then he comes home and says, you know, I asked you to watch my house. Do you know, oh, dude, I have no idea what happened. In those days, it wouldn't have been a stereo or a TV. It might have been a cow or a sheep, right? You know, watch my sheep for me while I'm gone. They come back and all the sheep are gone or, you know, eating pork chops or something, right? And, and what, what happened? I, you know, I don't know. You know, lamb chops, it should be, right? Eating lamb chops and the guy's wondering where his sheep are. Sorry. And he's saying here, when you do that, when you sin against your neighbor by not caring for what he's asked you to watch over for him, that you're not only sinning against him, but ultimately you're sinning against the Lord. And so when we treat people wrong, you know, you know we need to treat people in a, in a way you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do, right? I mean, we need to treat people the way the Lord would treat them. We need to love people the way the Lord loves them. That's why our six-word philosophy of ministry at Calvary Santa Cruz is preach the word. What's the rest of it? Love the people. And we need to have that supernatural love one for another, not be looking for a way to get over on each other. And so that's what happens here, is he said, you know, if you don't watch over and safe keep their stuff, and then the other thing it says, or about a pledge. So you made a promise to him. You, you said, yeah, I promise I'll do that for you. I promise you I'll do it. And then you don't keep your word. Let me encourage you, especially as parents, be moms and dads of your word. Amen? I tell my kids, I promise, that's it. I, if, I don't, if I don't fulfill a promise, I must be dead. You know, because I want them to know that my word means something. I'll never forget that sometimes it comes at a high price to keep your word, doesn't it? Sometimes you make a commitment and then you realize, oh man, that's going to be rough. How am I going to do that? One time I, my son had came up to me and said, hey, Daddy, uh, we're having, bring your daddy to kindergarten day. This was several years ago. Johnny was in kindergarten. He's in sixth grade now, so it's been a while. But he said, you're going to come, right? I said, son, I wouldn't miss it for the world. He said, you get to talk about your jobs. You can tell him about being a pastor, and you can tell him about your, you know, your advertising job. You know, and and you're, you're, here's your day. I said, okay, it's on a Friday. Okay, son, I'll be there. Well, in the meantime, I had, they had put me down for some market way up in Calaveras County, and I didn't even know it was in my name. They come to me three days before the book's closed, and you've got 35 customers you have to go see in Calaveras County. This is, they're telling me this 
Wednesday morning, and the book closes on Friday. And guess where I'm supposed to be Friday morning? I'm supposed to be in my son's kindergarten class. And for him, if I don't show up, he doesn't understand. He's five. And if dad doesn't show up, all he knows is dad had something more important to do than me. And so I'm thinking, oh man, how, how am I going to do this? And so I just, said, I just called those 35 people that day from San, from San Jose and said, I'm going to be up there all day Wednesday and Thursday, and guess what? You're going to see me one of those days. So I saw people till 2 o'clock in the I mean, I, you know, whenever they'd see me till, did all the paperwork, drove all night, went straight to my son's school, and walked in just in time for Daddy Day in kindergarten. But the reason is that God really instilled in my heart that it's so important that we be people of our word. You want your kids to have, be people of their word, you need to be a person of your word. And the Lord says, if you make a pledge to somebody, you need to fulfill it, even to your own harm. Even if you say something and then later you realize, man, it's going to cost me this, it's going to cost me time, it's going to cost me money, whatever it is, be a person of your word. Amen? So he says, if you make a pledge to somebody, fulfill it. Then he says, or about a robbery. Now in this case, Something's being stolen. You either stole it from them or you refuse to testify when you know who's done it. But there's a robbery that's happened. Something's been taken away from this person. And either you're guilty of doing it or you just refuse to testify when it's happened. And then lastly, he says, or if if he has extorted from his neighbor. That means to deceive or defraud for personal gain. You've cheated your neighbor. You got over on him, right? I hear people say that to me. I really got over on that guy. And they're proud of it. They're proud of the fact that they, they, made, they fleeced somebody out of something. They sold them something for twice as much as it was worth. Or they, they did something wrong. And, the Lord's, and it's interesting to me that the Lord is picking these sins when he's talking about transgressions. He picks things doing with being honest and being people of character and having a godly reputation. He doesn't, you know, these are, you know, adultery is a wicked sin. Murder is a wicked sin. No doubt those are incredible sins, but it's interesting to me that these are the sins that he talks about here. He says, you know what? Be a person of your word. Don't take from your neighbor. Don't take advantage of other people. And there's a reason I believe that he does that. Look at verse 3. He says, or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely. You know what? You find something that belongs to somebody else. Have you ever found something that belongs to somebody else? Wallet, key, something, right? Well, as Christians, I believe we should do everything we can to find that person and give it back to them. Not just be, oh, absent-minded or whatever. And he's saying, look, if you find something that belongs to somebody else, you know, we've all, you know, probably dreamed of finding a bag of money, or right? And, and the reality is that if we find something, and here's the sad part. If you lose your wallet, do you expect to get it back? Do you expect to get it back? Do you expect to get it back with the money in it? Okay. Why? Because that's the way people are. But what kind of testimony should we have? Wouldn't it blow someone's mind if you found a wallet with $500 in it and you went and knocked on his door and went, there you go. He opened up saw the money. Who's going to get glorified? God's going to be glorified. And he's saying here, look, be a person of your word. He's giving them the trespass offerings. He's saying, you know, don't get over on others. Don't lie for your own physical gain. Seek to honor God above all else and to esteem people greater than yourself. And look what he says here in the second half of that verse. If any one of these things that a man may do in which he sins, then it shall be because he has sinned that he is guilty. And notice it says, in any one of these things. You you know, it's not a grocery list when it comes to sin, right? Well, I don't break commandments 2, 4, 7, 9, and 10. 
kind of struggle. You know, you break one, you're guilty of all. That's what the Bible says, amen? It's like a, a, a link of a chain. You break one link and the whole thing falls apart. And he's saying, if you're guilty of any one of these, you've broken them all. You're guilty, which means you're under judgment before Almighty God. And again, I find it interesting that he, he picks these sins but shows, again, the incredible importance of being a man or a woman of integrity. That, you know, the Bible says you cannot serve God and mammon. And you know, when you look at every one of these, these sins, aren't they really about getting ahead physically? Taking from someone else, what are you taking? Stuff. Lying to somebody else about keeping what? Stuff. You know, it's all about me getting more stuff for my physical comfort instead of being a godly testimony. And we can't, the Bible says you cannot serve God and mammon. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, it's not evil to have money, we need money. You know, it's God gives it to us that we might, it's His money though. And we need to be good stewards of it because it all belongs to Him. And you need to, when you're taking money out of your wallet, think about the fact that you're taking money out of God's wallet. When you're writing a check, you're writing a check out of God's bank account. And you need to think of things that way. Say, Lord, it's all yours. Let me be faithful with what you've given me. And he's saying, if you break one sin, you've broken them all. And if, you're guilt, if you've sinned any one of these, you're guilty. And you're under judgment. And so he's encouraging them that we be who we are before God and also our witness before men. Both of those are way more important than how much money we have. It's who we are before God and how we are before men. That we be both people of a godly reputation to the outside world and also people of godly character. Character is who we are when no one's watching. Reputation is who we are when everyone's watching. And God wants us to be people of godly character and godly reputation. And he's saying, but you know what, if you've blown it, then you're guilty. And because you're guilty, you're under judgment. And let's read the rest of verse 4. Just remember, when you're doing things, are you, what are you pursuing? And look at the consequences that sin has. It says, that it, beginning of verse 4 again, it says, That it shall be, because he has sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore what he has stolen, or the thing which he has extorted, or what he has was delivered to him for safekeeping, or the lost thing which he has found, or all that, all that about which he has sworn falsely. So if you're sinned and you're guilty, and you realize, now I want you to see something here, and we're going to look at this in a minute, but he's saying here, if the person realizes what they've done is wrong, and they confess their sin, that there's still consequences. Don't we sometimes expect that if we sin and then we ask God to forgive us, that the consequences should just go away? I mean, isn't that what we want? right? We want mercy. Don't cry out for justice because you don't want that. Amen? Well, that ain't fair. I don't want what's fair. No, thanks. Okay? Fair's not good for me. I want, I want mercy. Right? Mercy's good. Fairness not good. Right? I don't want what Dave deserves. That'd be, that'd be very hot there, weeping and gnashing of teeth, and I don't want to go. I want mercy, not justice. And he's saying right here in this, in this context that when he has sinned and is guilty, realizes he is guilty, he's going to have to bring restoration. And what kind of restoration is he going to have to bring? No matter what he, which one of these things he's done, he's going to have to bring restitution to produce restoration. And he's going to have to go to that person that he has done wrong against. Look what it says there in verse 5. He shall restore its full value and add one-fifth more to it, and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering. So when you take something from somebody, he says there, I want you to bring them back 120% of what you took. You know, if you, 
found a wallet, there was $500 in it, and you spent it, and then later you were convicted, take the wallet back and bring him $600. Because you need to restore to him. You need to make restitution to him. You need to say, you know what, I've blown it. And you need to confess before God, but you need to minister to people. Imagine if you did that, how blown away people would be. Can you imagine if you showed up at the guy's house a year later and said, dude, remember when you lost your wallet about a year ago? Well, I found it, I spent the money, and please forgive me, I've been convicted by it, and there was $500 in it, but I felt so bad about it, I paid you interest. Here's 600 bucks, here's your wallet. Man, you want to talk about testimony, right? People would be blown away. They would never expect that, but you know what? As Christians, that should not be the exception. That should be the rule. When we've sinned, when we've blown it, when we've grieved somebody, when we've harmed somebody else, we should be coming to them saying, to my own harm, I want to make, make amends to you. And it's interesting that he has them pay 120%. Then it says, now I want to, in Exodus, it says if you get caught, if you stole a guy's sheep, and he comes to your house, and you're having lamb chops in your backyard, and you get caught, you had to pay back 200%. Not 120, 200. If you confessed, and you came before God with a broken and contrite heart, then the consequence was less. And I believe that's a, there's an application to that. I truly believe that when we come broken before God, that, the, that their consequences are there, but God tends to show mercy in those situations. Whereas somebody who just doesn't care and says, I'm doing whatever I want anyway, and they just go, the consequences tend to be much heavier. And I found that to be true in, in ministering to people. I find that God is merciful, but God also allows there to be consequences to our sin. If there were no consequences to our sin, then we would just keep on sinning. Amen? It's a fact. I've had people come into my office and grieved that they committed adultery on their wife. They've asked their wife for forgiveness, they've been restored, and the woman they were sleeping with still turns up pregnant. Guess what? Consequences of sin. I know people that say, hey, you know, I, I really want to serve God, but I struggle with this certain thing, and I, I haven't done it in a while, and then they go out and have a few beers, and they get a car accident. Now, God will forgive them, but sin still has consequences. Amen? And, you know, it's so important that it's not God's fault that there are consequences for sin in my life. God is a merciful God, a gracious God, a loving God. But he's saying when you sin, there's going to be consequences. And you need to come to the place where you confess your sin, and you come to the person that you've wronged, and you make restitution for them that there might be restoration in your fellowship. That you might turn a bad situation into an opportunity for the gospel. You know, you can even do something really wrong and harmful and then go back later and bring restitution and God can use that as an opportunity to minister to somebody. And so that's what he's talking about here, is, this, is, is the trespass offering. He says, give it to whomever it belongs. And I love this part because not only do you have to give it back, but you've got to go give it to them. And I think that's probably the harder part than writing the check. The harder part is knocking on the door. Oh, man. Can't I just leave the wall on the porch with the money in it? I mean, I'll add the 100 bucks, Lord, but can't I just leave it on the porch and run, ding-dong ditch, right? He'll find it, he'll be stoked, he won't have to know who did it, I can just go home. No, 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 you bring it to whomever it belongs. Yeah, you know, the thief, that, I'm the thief, that'd be me, right? And that's hard, but that's what God wants us to do, is be people who come to the place where our confession brings humility, and brings us to a place of brokenness, where we come before him and say, I, you know what, I've sinned against you, I want to restore our relationship. I want to make restitution, and I want to make things right. And it says there, on the day of the trespass or guilt offering, restitution with men as a part of your offering to the Lord. You guys have all read this in Scripture, no doubt, where it says when you're taking communion, right? 
You're taking communion, you have hatred or something in your heart against a brother. What does the Bible say to do? What are you supposed to do? Go and make it right and then come back. Why? Because when we have something against our brother, we've done something that's caused harm to the name of God, we cannot take, we can't enter into that place of worship or that place of fellowship or that place of communion. Remember that as Christians, when we sin, we're still his children. We've still been adopted into his family and we're still ha ha heaven bound, right? But we break fellowship with him because God cannot have sin in his presence. He's perfect, holy God. And so because of our sin, we must come to a place where we keep short accounts with him, and when we blow it, we make restitution with those we've sinned against, that there might be restoration between us and the Father. And so that's what this is all about. He's just saying, look, guys, you, before you bring the, the offering to me, make restitution with men. Then it says, again, that 120%. 120% when there's been confession, 200% when caught. Sin's consequence is always greater than that which it gives us. That's why he's, they give more than 100%. Do you know that sin's consequences are always greater whenever that temporary pleasure was that it gave you? Always. Right? Do you ever look back? You know, nobody's sitting in a jail cell saying, man, it was really worth it, man, driving my car 100 miles an hour. That was great. Guy's sitting in jail going, what was I thinking, right? Why? Because sin's consequences are always greater than that temporary physical comfort that comes. Later, you look down the line, and you know you got cirrhosis of the liver. Nobody's sitting there going, yeah, that was great. I'm glad I drank all that vodka. Dying of cirrhosis of the liver, turning yellow. I'm thinking, no, that was dumb. Duh, what was I doing drinking that alcohol? I mean, what happens is we are grieved by our sin. And he's saying the payment is always greater than whatever you initially received from it. Sin's consequences always are and always will be. Results in consequences both physically and and spiritually. Physically, it can be your health, your loss of job, uh, incarceration, lost friendships, broken relationships, and spiritually broken fellowship with God. Verse 6. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord. So, restoration with men, but I also need renewed fellowship with the Lord. When I sin against my neighbor, I've not only broken my relationship with them, broken my relationship this way, I've also broken my relationship this way. You know, the good news is, I love this, that Jesus prayed for the relationships in both directions. Amen? He healed the relationships that go this way and the relationship straight up and down with Him. And so when we blow it with our neighbor, we need to seek their forgiveness, but ultimately every sin is against God, and we need to come with that trespass or guilt offering before Him and seek His forgiveness. Physical restitution is not enough. There must also be a sacrifice. Remember again, without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission for sin. It says in verse 6, Bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering to the priest. Now, a ram offering without blemish. We talked about this last week. The ram is a type or a picture of what? Jesus. Remember, I'm gonna, I know it's repetitive, but remember in Genesis 22. Going up Mount Moriah, Abraham, 100 plus years old, his young son carrying the wood, carrying the wood up Mount Moriah, just as Jesus later would carry the cross. And he says to his father, Father, look the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And I love the response. He says, My son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. Not for himself, as some of your translations say. That's a poor translation. He says God will provide himself a sacrifice. And at the moment that he has his son laid out and he's got his, his, his knife lifted up, willing to sacrifice his son, his 
only true son, and he's willing to sacrifice him, the Lord stops him. And then Abraham lifts up his eyes, and what does he see caught in the thicket? A ram. And so this ram without blemish that is talked about here in the text is a type or a picture of Christ. We also looked at it in, um, the, in Exodus as we looked at the tabernacle. Remember the ram skins dyed red, covering the, the black uh, tarp that was uh, the, the black tarp of the goat's hair that was a picture of sin. What covered the sin? The, the ram skins dyed red. The shedding of blood for the covering of sin. And so when we say the ram, it's a picture of Christ. He says, so you bring that ram without blemish. Well, who's that? That's Jesus Christ once again. Who's the only perfect sacrifice? It's got to be the Lord. And he said, so when you sin against man, there's consequences for your sin, both in the physical, but there must be restoration in the spiritual. There must be forgiveness. You must come before God and seek to restore that relationship with Him as well. Verse 7. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. And he shall be forgiven for any one of the things that he may have done in which he trespasses. So the priest must make atonement for him. So he brings the offering, but who makes the atonement? Who pays the price? The priest does. Now who again is the priest a picture of? It's Christ. Who's our great high priest now? Jesus. Who's seated at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf daily? It's Jesus Christ. I've said this before. That's why we don't need priests anymore. Amen? We don't need more, any more priests. We only have one. It's the great high priest, and it's Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, how did the priest make atonement for him? He would first take the blood, and he would sprinkle the blood on the bronze altar. Remember the bronze altar had four horns? Picture of the four points of what? The cross. The bronze altar was that place of sacrifice. And then he would take and burn the fat, the best part of the sacrifice, given to the Lord. All again, a picture of Christ. Remember that you cannot atone for yourselves. They had to bring it to the priest. The priest had to make atonement for them. They couldn't bring the offering. Even if they brought a perfect lamb, they could not make the sacrifice themselves. The priest had to do it for them. Why couldn't they do it? Because they were sinners. And they needed one who would intercede on their behalf. Again, pointing to Christ. So when we sin, not only do we have those physical consequences, but we have a spiritual breaking between in our relationship with Almighty God. Again, all a picture of Christ. But I love the fact that it says, shall be forgiven for any one. Through the shedding of blood and a confessing heart comes, comes forgiveness for all sin. Don't you love that? The Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Amen? No matter what you've done, God's grace is sufficient. I'm glad that it doesn't get to the point where, oh, that's it. Oh, how many sins? Forget it. That's too many. Aren't you glad that our God loves us in spite of us? He knows us. He who knows me best loves me most, and that blows my mind. He knows every wicked, vile thing I've ever done, thought, said. And he, you know, he knows everything about me, and He still loves me. And he knows everything about you. He knows things that nobody else on the planet knows about you. He knows, and He still loves you more than anyone else. Loves you so much that he'd rather die than live without you. That's the God that we serve. Praise the Lord. Amen? Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And he says, you bring this to me, and I will forgive all of your sins. Bring the sacrifice of that firstborn, and all of your sins, not some of your sins, will be forgiven. Now let's look at the priestly regulations when it comes to the offerings. Verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. 
The burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning, and the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. Now we've already looked at the burnt offering, but here he's giving specific instructions to the priest. We know what the burnt offering is. The burnt offering was, had to be a bull, an oxen, a lamb, or a goat. And I remember they would bring that, the burnt offering in, and whoever was making the offering had to first lay his hand on the head of the offering. And after laying his hand on the head, why did he do that? What did that do? What was that signifying? He was identifying himself with the sacrifice. He was saying, this bull or this lamb or this ox or this goat is a representation of me. And I'm the one that deserves what's about to happen. And he put his hands on the head of the animal. And when he did that, it was that identification. But as soon as he put his hands on the head of the animal, he then would have to slit its throat. And blood would run everywhere. Now after that, the animal had to be skinned. This does not sound like something I'd really be into doing like all the time. I mean, so remember again, sin is heavy duty and cost. So you had to skin the animal, and after skinning it, they had to cut out all of the fat. Then they had to wash the entrails, and then they would lay it on, a, on the wood, and they would burn it, and it would be a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, what's this a picture of? It's Christ. Because remember again that he was skinned. Remember his scourging? They whipped him with a cat of nine tails and 40 lashes minus one. And on each one they had pieces of bone or, or glass or things that would grab onto the, the skin. And every time they pulled back, it would just rip his body away. And by the time you get to the sixth or seventh lash, most people would collapse because they were around the pole where they could not protect themselves. Feet and arms around the pole, couldn't even put their arms up, couldn't do anything to stop what was happening. And often by the sixth or seventh lash, you could see their internal organs. Well, they did 40 lashes, 39 lashes on our Savior. By the time they were done, there would be no skin left on his body. Blood going everywhere. That's what they did to Jesus. That's what the skinning is a picture of. As they skinned that animal, it was a picture of what was going to happen to our Savior. Blood everywhere. Why? Because of his love for you and me. That's the God that we serve. And that's what we're going to be celebrating on Sunday that, praise God, it didn't end at the cross. Amen? It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Amen? I mean, Sunday morning, guess what? He'd risen from the dead, triumphed over sin and death. That's the God that we serve. Now, they would lay it on the wood. Again, the wood is a picture of what? The cross. They would take this, this animal skinned and gutted and cut and bleeding and put it upon the wood. Then they would take it on that wood, and what's interesting to me is it says it was a sweet aroma in the presence of the Lord. Blows my mind. So literally, the cross, though it was separation between God the Father and God the Son, and it was heavy, at the same time it was a sweet aroma because it restored sinful man back to holy God. And it was worth it for Almighty God. It was worth it for the Son and the Father both. But it says there that the priest will put it on the altar all night until morning, and the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It'll be on the, fall, on, the, on the altar all night long, continuous sacrifice. You know, the Bible says that Christ is living ever to make intercession for us daily. Christ lives to make intercession for us daily. Do you know that His sacrifice continues to pay for our sin right now? Amen? Past, present, and future. It's a permanent situation between us and him it's paid for praise god and they're saying that it had to be on the altar and they left they kept it burning morning and night which meant the priest had to stay up all night they would take they had to get up in the middle of the night and make sure that wood never went out make sure that that fire was kept stoked 
It was a constant reminder as the sweet aroma was coming off of it that the sacrifice was restoring sinful man back to holy God. That through the shedding of blood came forgiveness of sin. Praise God. And so we see that fire was kept burning. The priest could never, ever let the fire go out. You know, that's an example for us, too. Our walks with God ought to burn night and day. Amen? Shouldn't we be on fire for Him 24-7? I mean, I'm talking about when we're at home hanging out with our family or when we're at work. You know, not just Christians, you know, for an hour and a half on Sunday morning and an hour and a half on Wednesday night. You know, this is not the Kiwanis Club. Amen? You don't show up here and go, okay, I'm a Kiwana because I'm in the room now, right? I mean, no, we are Christians. It's 24-7. We're new creations in Christ. Our life should be totally radically different than the world that we live in. We're to be burning on fire, salt and light, all the time. Amen? That's what God's called us to be. Then it says there in verse 10, And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers. He shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering which the fire has consumed in the altar and he shall put them beside the altar now the linen garment remember was pure white um, this one and the linen trousers were white they went underneath the robe that that went for the ephod they were the closest ones to the body and the 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 fact that they were all white and linen reflected again the righteousness or the holiness of god but then it also they had these linen trousers that were white and the reason for that was that these linen trousers were under the robe, they were out of man's view, and it covered their nakedness. And basically what it was is they were, they were, ro- they were righteous and holy again in the places no one else saw. It's a picture of the fact that we should be holy before God alone. Again, that character issue. Who we are before men, but who we are before God. And they would put these things on, showing again as a picture of Christ, that Christ was holy in the eyes of men, and He was holy in the things that no one ever saw about Him. He was completely and totally sinless and perfect. That's the God we serve. Amen? And it was a type, as a priest being a type or a picture of Christ, they would put them on their body. So what, what happened when they put them on their body? They were, these priests, they were clothed in righteousness. Right? They put the white these white garments on, they were clothed in righteousness. And not because of what they have done, but because of what Christ has done for them. If they came into the most holy place and they were not clothed in the, in the priestly garments, clothed in righteousness, you know what happened to them? They dropped dead. That's pretty heavy judgment, right? Talk about consequence for sin. You walk in the holy place and you're not wearing the holy garments, right? Why? It's a picture for us that we can only approach the throne of God if we are clothed in the righteousness of the shed blood of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Amen? We can't get there any other way. One way God said to get to heaven, and Jesus is the only way. song I sang when I was a little kid, right? And it's so true. The only way that we can get into His presence is we are clothed in righteousness. And we are clothed in righteousness not because of our good works, but because of the good work that He did for us upon the cross. He paid the price. Now it's interesting. Look what it says that they are to do. I love this part. Take up the ashes of the burnt offering which the fire has consumed on the altar. So they would take up the ashes of the burnt offering, the remains of the sacrifice after it was sacrificed on the altar. The remains of the sacrifice after it was sacrificed on the altar. Look at the rest of the verse. And shall put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside of the camp to a clean place. You know, let me tell you what this is a picture of. 
carrying that which was left after the sacrifice out and placing it into a clean place. What would that be a picture of? After Jesus was crucified on the cross, they came and they wrapped him in what? Clean white linen. Then they took him to a clean place, a place where no one else had ever been laid, right? It was a rich man's grave, but no one else had ever been there. And there they took the remains of the sacrifice, the, the body of Christ beaten and bloody and beyond recognition, and they wrapped him in, in white linen, and they took him and they placed him in the tomb. Isn't it interesting that the, the priest here was doing the very thing that, again, pointed to what would happen to Christ? Man, I love the Bible. It's just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all over the place. Again, in a clean place. Verse 12. And on the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out, and the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and lay the burnt offering in order on it, and he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offering. So he laid the offering on the wood, again, a picture of Christ in the cross. He would take the very best that he had and sacrifice that, because you know what? God gave his best, and that he gave himself. Amen? And they would offer the best of the sacrifice unto the Lord. And it was a sweet aroma in his presence. But I love what it says at the end of this verse. It says, the fat of the peace offering. He shall burn on it the fat. So we're talking about the burnt offering, and now he comes over here and he talks about the fat from the peace offering, which is a fellowship offering. It was an offering where part of it was burnt, and the other part was used to feed your whole family, and it was like having fellowship with God. But it's interesting that upon the burnt offering came the peace offering. Now why is that? Because through the shedding of blood for remission of sins comes peace between sinful man and holy God. Amen? Why does the peace offering put upon the burnt offering? Because you can't have peace until you have forgiveness. You cannot have peace until someone has paid the price and brought restoration between sinful man and holy God. So it wasn't the peace offering that went first, it was the burnt offering that went first. It was that total dedication of our Savior, giving of Himself completely, laying down His life for us. He's the Prince of Peace. Amen? You know, we got all these people picketing for peace. All I want to tell them is, you want peace? Get to know the Prince of Peace. Amen? And when the bombs stop, that doesn't equate to peace. You know what equates to peace? Having a relationship with the very God that created you to have a relationship with Him. You're not going to know peace. You're not going to know joy. I don't care if there was, quote, world peace. I don't care if you had the biggest house on, a, on the hill, if you had all the money you could possibly want, the career that you wanted. You're still not going to have peace if you don't have a relationship with Christ. And you can't get to a place of peace until you've been to a place of confession and brokenness and repentance. Peace doesn't come before those things. Those things come before there is peace. And that's why the burnt offering comes before the peace offering. Verse 13. The fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. A perpetual offering to the Lord. Christ's redeeming work was for all generations and would never cease. Verse 14 through 23, the grain offering. This is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Abraham shall offer it on the altar before the Lord. Now what was the grain offering? It points to Christ's what? Who remembers? His perfection, His holiness, His sinlessness. Remember it was fine flour sifted. Picture of him being tempted and yet without sin. It was mixed with oil. Oil in the Bible is a representation of what? Holy Spirit. Frankincense, which was uh, one of the gifts that Jesus received, right, from the wise men. But it was something that burned and, and had a sweet aroma. It was without leaven, untouched by evil, and it had to be beaten, pointing to the fact that he suffered on our behalf. Now it says there that the priest 
shall bring the grain offering and offer it on the altar before the Lord. He shall take from it a handful of fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and all the frankincense which is in the grain in the grain offering and shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma as a memorial to the Lord. So he would remove a portion of the grain offering and he would take it and he would burn it to the Lord, producing a sweet aroma. You know, Christ is holy and that grain was a picture of his holiness and when it was burnt, it produced a sweet aroma. Doesn't it swell, smell sweet to you when you hang out with somebody who's walking in holiness? Isn't it a sweet aroma just to be around them? When people just are in love with God, don't you just want to hang out with them? Don't you gravitate toward them? I, have rela- I had relationships with people in, the line, in line at Disneyland that are closer to people that I'm related to. Because what happens when they just have that sweet aroma of a love for God? You start talking to them, and they got the joy of the Lord, and you're like, man, dude, I want to hang out with you, right? Because it is sweet. Bill and I were working out the other day. We met a guy that goes to Santa Cruz Bible, and we were just talking about it. The guy walked away, and we said, man, that guy loves Jesus. You know, you could just, man, he just had such a love for God, and he was just glowing in the dark for the Lord, and you're like, you know, man, I want to hang out with this guy. And that's what happens when you walk in obedience. It's a sweet aroma to the Lord, but I also believe it's a sweet aroma in the presence of others. People just go, what? Whoa, what's up? Something about you. I encourage single people with that. You want a godly wife, be a godly man. You want a godly husband, be a godly woman. Amen? What are godly people attracted to? Godliness. Right? They're attracted to people that love the Lord. They're not, you know, they go, man, you just love God. I want to hang out with you. And so it's a sweet aroma in the presence of the Lord. Verse 16. And of the remainder of it, Aaron and his sons shall eat. With unleavened bread it shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat it. So the rest of the offering, they gave a portion to the Lord, but the rest of it provided for the priests. And that, what that means is that when we give to the Lord, the Lord will then use some of what we give to the Lord to provide for those who are in full-time ministry. Whether it be missionaries or pastors or worship leaders, or anybody who's doing full-time work for the kingdom of God, when we give to the Lord, God will take a portion of that and use it for himself as, as here, but the rest of it will be used to minister to those who are called to ministry. It's right here in the Old Testament, and that's the example. And they ate it without leaven in a holy place in the presence of God. And you know what, that, what I thought about, and this could just be a personal application for me, but when I look at people that have been called by God into ministry, if they're truly called by God, when God provides for them, they still need to be eating it in a holy place. Amen? And they still need to be, it's not a windfall for their, for their own comfort. They need to be in the center of God's will and using what God has provided for them to strengthen them for God's glory. Not being a Pharisee who's living in a big house on the hill or being a televangelist telling people that you need a Rolls Royce or you're not really saved. You know what I mean? Or plant your seed offering or whatever it might be. It's when God gives to those who are called for ministry, then they still need to walk in holiness and use what's been given to them in a way that will glorify and honor the Lord. Verse 17, I shall not be, it shall not be baked with leaven, I have given it as a portion of my offering made by fire. It is most holy like the sin offering and the trespass offering. The sin offering, the grain offering, the trespass offering are the things that God used to provide for the priest. But the priests were supposed to only take the portion that God had set aside to them. No more. Those of you guys coming on Friday mornings, Hophni and Phinehas. These are the sons of Eli. And they're only supposed to take a small portion. And what do they do? They reach in and grab the portion that was supposed to be given to the Lord and they take it for themselves. 
And we know what ends up happening to those guys. It doesn't work out too well. And Eli refuses to say something to his boys, and he falls off his rocker, literally, and crashes to his death, right? Why? Because they took the things that were supposed to be given to the Lord, and they used them for their own comfort. And God has called us to, to give to the Lord first, and to live off what God has given to us. It says, it is most holy. And the sin offering and the trespass offering also had portions that went to the priest. All the males, verse 18, among the children of Aaron may eat it. So provided not only for Aaron, but for all of his sons. It shall be a statute forever in your generations concerning the offerings made by fire to the Lord. Everyone who touches it must be holy. So there's a provision for the priestly line. It would last until the Messiah comes. But everyone who touches it must be holy. Only those who are holy could touch the offering. Now, how is that possible? It's a picture, again, of Christ's perfection. A picture of Christ's calling. If anybody touches God's glory, anybody touches something that belongs to the Lord, then God is going to deal with them. Verse 19, now consequences are, are the grain offering for the priests, excuse me. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering of Aaron and his sons, which they shall offer to the Lord, beginning on the day which he has anointed. One-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a daily grain offering, half of it in the morning, half of it at night. So that the priests had their own offerings. So the priests weren't just to make offerings for other people, but they needed to make an offering for themselves too. So someone who's called into ministry is still called to be someone who gives, not just receives. And so these guys would give, and it's interesting that a tenth of an ephah is the amount of food that a man would eat in a day. And so every single day, the priest, first thing he did was make an offering which was equivalent to what he would eat in a day and give it to the Lord first. Give the Lord the first fruits, and he would give it to him and offer it up to the Lord. Verse 21. He shall make it a, in a pan with oil. When it is mixed, you shall bring it in. The baked pieces of the grain offering you shall offer for a sweet aroma to the Lord. They would take, make these cakes, according to the Mishnah. And they, they would very much like the showbread. And they mixed it with oil, a picture of the Holy Spirit. They baked it, a picture of the fiery trials of our Savior. And then they would break it in two, a picture of the fact that our Savior was scourged and went to the cross. Half of it was offered in the morning, and half of it was offered at night, and it produced a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. We're almost done. Verse 22. The priest from among his sons who is anointed in this place shall offer it. It is a statute forever to the Lord. It is to be wholly burned. The burnt offering, none of it, or this offering, this grain offering for the priest, they didn't keep any of it from themselves. They gave it all to the Lord. So when the priest gives, he gives it to the Lord completely. He doesn't hold any of it back for himself. Verse 23. For every grain offering for the priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. Again, the priest ate of the offerings of the people, but the offerings that they gave, they were to give completely and totally. And it's interesting that when the people gave, that the priest ate a part of their offering. And I looked up Leviticus chapter 10, and it says there, in a, a picture of Christ, that when he ate of their offering, he was bearing the guilt of the people, atoning for their sin. In a sense, he was taking the sin of the people upon himself or into himself. It says that in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 17. And that's a picture of what Jesus did. He took our sin upon himself and went to the cross on our behalf. And lastly, the law of the sin offering, last six verses. Also the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, the sin offering shall be killed before the Lord it is most holy. 
Now the sin offering again was a sacrifice. It was a, a bull or an ox. It was slaughtered on the north side of the altar. Who remember, remembers why that's significant? Why the north side of the altar? Calvary is on the north side of Jerusalem. When, those of you who go with us in March, we'll be sitting where the temple is, and you'll be able to look straight out dead north, and guess what's there? Calvary. And it said that they took the sacrifice and they burned it on the north side of the, or they cut it, killed on the north side of the burnt offering, pointing to Jesus being crucified on the cross. Remember then that after the sin offering, the priest would dip his finger in the blood. He would sprinkle it seven times, the number of perfection, at the veil of the sanctuary, and he put the blood on the horns. Again, a picture of Jesus' crucifixion. Verse 26. The priest who offers it for a sin offering shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten, in the court of the tabernacle of meeting, signifying that he bore the sin of the person who brought the offering. Again, a picture of Christ who would later bear our sins. And it was eaten in a holy place, a picture of you and I being fed by the Spirit of God. What did they do when they ate? They ate where? In a holy place. In the tabernacle of meeting, they would sit and they would consume this offering. And isn't that where we get fed? We come to the place of, of offering to the Lord, and that's where God feeds us. The place where we come and we offer to the Lord our first fruits of our finances, our first fruits of our our giving, our first fruits of our, our gifts, our first fruits period is the same place where God ministers to us, and the same was true of the priests in those days. They would go in and they would make sacrifice and they would minister to the people on behalf of the Lord, and then it was in that very spot in that holy place where they would eat the things that had been given to them by God. It's the place where they would minister and the place they would get fed, and that's a picture of the church. The place that we minister and the place that we get fed. Amen? Verse 27. Everyone who touches its flesh must be holy. And when its blood is sprinkled on any garment, you shall wash that on which it is sprinkled in a holy place. The blood was considered very holy. And when the blood touched another garment, it had to be cleansed. And everyone who touched it again had to be set apart to God. They could touch and eat of the flesh only if they were called by God. And the priestly garment worn would often get bloody. A picture of that, you know... We think of the priests and we think they're, they're walking around in these perfect, beautiful robes and are just somehow, you know, I don't know how they'd be cutting animals to pieces and not getting blood all over themselves. When they got done, they were covered in blood. And their garments had to be cleansed in a holy place. I don't know if they went to the bronze laver and cleansed them. I don't know if they washed them by hand, but they would cleanse them in that holy place. And that's a picture, again, of what Christ happened with Christ because when Jesus went to the Christ, he was crossed, he was covered in blood. And when the priests were done, no doubt the people would see the priest and they had these white garments and all of a sudden these garments were covered in blood. And it was a picture of our Savior. Verse 29, or 28. But the earthen vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. And if it is boiled in a bronze pot, it shall be both scoured and rinsed in water. You know what's all interesting to me? For an earthen vessel to be used, it had to be what? After it was used, it had to be broken. You know why they broke it? Because they didn't want it to be used for anything ungodly. After it was used in a holy way, it was broken, so they would not then take it out and use it in an ungodly way. And the same is true of us. If we will be broken before the Lord, God will use us in a holy way. And it will keep us from going out and doing things contrary to the will of God. If we're broken and desperate and crying out to Him. A man or a woman is the only thing that becomes more valuable when broken. 
Everything else becomes less valuable. We become more valuable when broken. A bronze pot, bronze in the, in the, we saw this in Exodus, is a type or a picture of judgment. And notice what happens. It's washed or cleansed with water, a picture of the Word of God. Verse 29. All the males among the priests may eat it. It is most holy. But no sin offering from which any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned in the fire. So the atoning blood that they would go in and sprinkle on the mercy seat was not to be eaten. It was, only, it was totally dedicated as a sacrifice. Again, a picture of our Lord. So, in review, we had trespasses against men. When you sin against your brother, you're sinning against God. You know, when you get mad at the guy in traffic that cuts you off and you yell at him, you might as well be yelling at Jesus. Amen? Because you're sinning against God. When you get ticked off at your boss and you, you don't want to put rat poison in his coffee or something, right? I mean, hopefully you don't want to do that. Pastor Dave did not tell you to do that. Let's back, take that off the tape, right? Back up. I never said that. But you know what I mean? When you get angry and you want to go out and wreak vengeance, remember that you're doing it as unto the Lord. When you sin against men, you're sinning against God. And you need to be a Christ-like example. And then we saw our great high priest. In the burnt offering, a picture of his total devotion. In the grain offering, a picture of his sinless perfection. And in the sin offering, in the fact that he truly is our redeeming Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that we, as we continue to sin, we can know that there is a payment for our sin. May we never take it for granted, but Lord, I pray that each one of us, Father, would have a burden and a heart to be holy and consecrated unto you. I pray, Lord, we would live lives that would be a sweet aroma in your presence and would minister to the people around us. And Lord, I pray that we would learn just from the examples in the text tonight, Lord, of total devotion of walking in lives of purity. And Father, I just thank you again that you paid the price. I thank you, Lord, that on the cross you said, it is finished. There's nothing else that we can do to earn salvation but simply come to you with hearts of repentance. Father, I pray there's anybody here tonight that doesn't know you, Lord. Just open their eyes to their need for you. Father, we thank you again that you took that bloody mess and you became that for us that we might have eternal life. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.